In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. I look back at everything I did for God was really for Wayne. Yeah, it for was, sure. It was, be, it was to be successful, to be popular, to be whatever. And I, I keep saying it was for God because that made it look like I was a good guy. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army. I salute you. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men of the Arena podcast, Spotify's number one podcast for Christian men. I'm Jim Ramos, your guide and host for this show, leading you to your best version inside that stress bubble of life and beyond. I got to tell you, I'm really excited about today's guest. Uh, he's written several books. Uh, one of them came to me at a very timely point in my life when I really needed to hear what he had to write. And so somebody sent us a little request to get him on our podcast. And I'm really, really excited. And when I asked him, I said, are you the guy that wrote this book too? He goes, yeah, I'm really excited. He wrote a book that is for men and women that we're going to talk about today. But honestly, this book resonated so deeply with me. I really, really am impressed with this book. It really surprised me, quite frankly, how, how it resonated with me. So I'm excited to get him on. He's 66 years old, lives in Newberry Park, California, where it's always sunny in 72. Married to his wife, Sarah, for 44 years. And uh, as an author... And speaker, Wayne, travels around the world helping people, this is really cool, find freedom from performance-based religion so they can embrace the relationship with God deeply rooted in his affection for them. His most popular titles include, So You Don't Want to Go to Church Anymore, which I loved, Finding Church, uh, In Season, A Man Like No Other, and He Loves Me, Learning to Live in the Father's Affection. He also co co-authored uh, and, uh, the book The Shack, which sold over 24 million copies, and a movie was made about this book, and so I really, really loved that book. Wayne also hosts Lifestream.org, which provides resources for spiritual growth and podcast at thegodjourney.com to encourage people uh, thinking outside the box of religious obligations. So, hey, I'm excited, Wayne. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Did I get those hey, book titles welcome. right? Yeah, you did. You did good. A couple commas. Some were kind of complicated. A couple commas <laughs> threw me off there. I was like, is this one book or two? But, uh, man, I really appreciate uh, you and and uh, what you've brought to the body of Christ. Can you just take a few minutes and share your story, a personal life, things you enjoy, hobbies, anything else you think would uh, be pertinent to our audience today? 
Well, I mostly enjoy hanging out with my wife, Sarah, since I travel a bit. We're not always together. So when we are, we take advantage of it. Uh, enjoy playing golf. Uh, enjoy uh, watching the Green Bay Packer football when I get a shot at it. And uh, really love long afternoons with friends and dinners and conversations on the patio and uh, just kind of helping people sort out their journey and help and people helping sort out mine. So, yeah. Yeah. In your book, you talked about a fellow, str- as a, you mentioned, being a fellow struggler. And so I think that's really good. Instead of uh, your pat answers, you become a fellow struggler. And I, I think that's so cool, man. So I, I just I, I shared this with you offline, but I want to share it again. When you handed me the book, uh, it has a daisy on the cover of it, and uh, he loves me. And I just I didn't resonate with that. But when I got into the book, man, I'll tell you what, this book is so rich and it's so good. And I thought it hits the heart of where men are. And I, you told me your 20-year anniversary, the book is coming up. And I mean, I think this would be a – we just need to get this book in the hands of guys because I think performance-based religion is the default for men in America. And uh, it has been my default. I had a two miraculous experiences year, back-to-back, year, year after year, that have helped me. And, uh, man, I just really appreciate your book. And, of course, the book, So You Don't Want to Go to Church Anymore. Uh, not only did you start the book in my hometown of San Luis Obispo – but that book really resonated with me at a time when I was struggling deeply with some, uh, let's just say, personality issues <laughs> that you can go, you went to in the book, and I'm just going to move away from that and and uh, very, very rapidly. So, uh, man, thank you so it's much. It's interesting hey. you complain about that cover, that not being manly enough. The original cover for He Loves Me was white and blue with the daisy on it. It was really femmed up because about 90% of book buyers are women. So I had a guy reading it on an airplane. He told me he's reading this old version of He Loves Me with this yellow cover and blue on it. And the stewardess, uh, the flight attendant comes up serving uh, you know, his drink. And as she serves it to him, she looks at the cover of his book and she looks at him. She, she, he thought she thought he was gay. And he just freaked out. And he told me about it. I said, from then on, he carries around in a paper sack. So I said, well, you know, we're going to man it up a little bit, which is what that version is about. But now we might be pushed to do it even further. Yeah, I think if you just take the daisy off and have the dad throwing his kid in the air. But but, but the, forget all that stuff. Once a guy dives into it, man, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, I, I it's rich. And your writing style is simple and, and heartfelt. You almost, your writing style reminds me on a level of Don Miller. Donald hmm. Miller, very very fluid and easy There's to read, and I really appreciate that. So, what was your role? I, I see that you co-authored the Shack. Uh, what was your role in that? Because your name's not on the cover; it's inside the cover. But what was your role in that book? Yeah, we've had some problems with it, obviously, since it was published. But uh, originally, uh, Paul Young had written a story for his kids, and uh, he sent a copy to me, and I, it was it was a it was really good. There was a lot of interesting stuff in it, but it wasn't yet a story. It was more of a catechism. And uh, so he asked me, you know, I turned back and said, I've got some people who'd love to make a movie of this, but it needs to be more of a story and offered to coach him into, you know, kind of turning it more into a story and taking everything going on in the shack is about Max healing. It's taking him from his great sadness into the knowing of God and the knowing of God's love. And uh, after a few months of trying to get him to write it, and he's just saying, look, I'm done. I'm not going to do anything more with it if you want to do it. So we took what he had started with, and then Brad Cummings and I, uh, my podcast partner for a long time, uh, we took 16 months, rewrote four different versions of the book till we got the story the way we wanted it, and then we couldn't find any publisher to publish it. Uh, everybody just said, no, we can't do this. It's too edgy. So then we published it ourselves and sold a million copies out of a 
out of a garage in Newbury Park in 13 months. So it was, and we didn't do any marketing. We did a $250 ad at one point, but then we were so chasing book sales, we didn't even have time to think about advertising the books. Well, you know, it's interesting that you give me that exclamation because I read So You Don't Want to Go to Church. I've read He Loves Me, and I've read The Shack. And honestly, when I read The Shack, I hear your voice in it. So I can tell that you had a huge hand in that book because it reads the way you write. And as an author myself, I, I can acknowledge that. And so that's why I asked the question because I was like, this guy had bigger role in here than I thought. Yeah. And then just, you know, credit things didn't work out the way it probably should have. And uh, that's unfortunate. And we've had a lawsuit over it. And finally that's done. So we're just grateful. And now, you know, the lawyers are pulling our names out of the book, even though they've agreed that it should be in there, but they're pulling it out. So it's just a weird to write a book about God's love and then for the authorship to be so fractured, it's unfortunately the story uh, men tell a lot from relationships of, of brokenness and feeling like betrayal. And, you know, we had something going here. I remember the three of us, Brad, Paul, and I, Fuller Theological Seminary, were just doing a workshop one evening and just talking about the relationship through the writing, through the publishing, through the success of the shack. It was all when we were still getting along and it was awesome. I had so many men walk up with tears in their eyes afterwards saying, I've never had a relationship with a man like I saw with you three tonight. How can I have a relationship with wow. other men like that? And then it all blew up. And it was just sad to me that, that, that we tend to put relationships on the back burner of everything else in our life. And we value success and grabbing all of our share of the pot we can grab. And, you know, we don't really let people into our life and share freely with them. And it's <sighs> That's so rich, that statement. I, you know, it's funny. My kids, grow, they, you know, they grew up in a pastor's home. And so, oh, Dad, we don't have any money. We this, that, that. And I finally had to tell them, listen, we are so rich because wealth is not found in stuff. Wealth is found in the things that are intangible, that are immortal, that carry over into eternity. Wealth is found in relationships. And I'll tell you what, I'm one of the richest guys in the block. And when we can start measuring our life against that, against the relationships that flow out of our relationship with God, I think that's a game changer, which is what you've given your life to. And I really, I, I, I appreciate uh, the shack and the other books and, and man, what you've done to impact the body of Christ. I mean, I, I feel privileged to have you on the show, man. So thank you so much. Uh, it's been a fun run, that's for sure. Oh man, hey, we're gonna take we're gonna take in. Uh, we just you know tell you how much we appreciate you. Then we're gonna throw you into the sharks, which is our rapid fire round. Oh boy! <laughs> so what I've done here is I've picked uh, several words out of your book. He loves me, which is what we're gonna focus on today. Uh, he loves me. Learning to live in the Father's affection. I've picked out several key words, and I want you to explain them. The overarching theme of the book is, you know, God's love and how we can interact in our relationship with God as we experience his love and what that does to change us. But in that, you have several key words throughout, and I'm just going to throw the word out, and I want you to give me your gut gut explanation of, of, of that word, and don't feel like you have to answer quickly. You know, I want you to feel free to elaborate. I just want you to explain that word, okay? Sure. All right, here's the first word. Fear. Fear has to, I, I, I go to First John 4 immediately when I hear fear about fear having to do with punishment. It's the idea that if I don't do something right, God's looking to whack me if we're talking about mm. the fear of God. So fear is always, I'm, a, I'm more afraid of the consequences than I am engaged with the opportunity to know the person making himself available to me. Oh, Wow. So that, that does lead to, okay, so let's do this. Let me lead that to our next word then, performance. 
Performance is the misguided illusion that our character qualifies us for love rather than his love transforms our character. So performance puts character and good actions in the wrong place. It says, I earn God's approval by doing these things rather than the freer I can live in God's love, the more he transformed my character. Do you think that's also an issue? Uh, you say performance-based, but is that also an issue with how we see ourselves? In other words, our identity in Christ? Yes, often. Sure yeah. it is. Yeah, okay. I, I heard somebody say the other day, which I thought was amazing, say when you ask most guys how they're doing spiritually, what they hear is, how are you doing sexually? And that huh. takes them to, often to a very dark place. So they don't like to talk about the question. They don't like to answer it. Because all they're thinking about is the, the rush of temptation in our world and lust in their hearts and all those kinds of things. And, and they don't really think about how does God access me even in my less pure thoughts, that God wants to be there with us too. And if you don't have a God who loves you enough to be inside your crud with you, and I think this is where Christianity's kind of messed it up. It's like, you know, God can only love us because Jesus covered us with his blood so he doesn't see who we really are anymore. Uh, instead of what instead of what the cross did was allowed God to crawl into our sin with us and us not be so embarrassed by it that we can't let him be in it with us and heal us. Wow. And that's why we struggle with healing. Well, you know it's interesting when you said you ask a guy how he's doing, he goes to how he's doing spiritually, he goes down the sexual path. I wrote down when when it seems like when I ask a guy how he's doing spiritually, he get, he starts giving me a to-do list of the things he's accomplished. Oh, I've done good. I'm praying twice a week. I'm doing this. It's his to-do list instead of, you know, how is he really experiencing God? When I ask guys, pastors, what is God saying? They really struggle to to share that with me. And I don't know if that's a theological, like they theologically, they don't think that God speaks except through his word. I don't know what it is, but a lot of guys really struggle in ministry. Yes. So, yeah, because we've reduced Christianity. There's a set of rules God gave us in a book, and you've got to interpret it correctly and follow the rules, and then God, you're on God's good side. What the book was meant to do was lead us to Him so that He could love us in a way that transforms us internally. That's an active, aggressive relationship with the Maker of heaven and earth. That's wow. not, you know, God's back there and, you know, kind of you know, rooting for me while I'm trying my best to fill, fulfill his obligations. So if I'm trying my best to fulfill his obligations, I'm operating in a performance-based theology. We'll talk about this later. You called it a favor line. But how does this performance-based religion lead us to shame, which is the next word? Well, it's, yeah, it's law, isn't it? I mean, yeah. obligation, basically a different way of saying law. We, we read Galatians thinking... Paul's talking about the Mosaic Law. He's not. He's talking about an obligation-based way of following God instead of being inside a relationship. And I, I really don't think, uh, this is going to be kind of counterintuitive, I don't think performance leads us to shame. I think shame leads us to performance. Oh. Shame is the thing that happened as soon as we fell in the garden. The first thing humanity felt was shame. And all of our less wonderful behaviors, let me say it that way, are either from shame or from compensation with shame. Like when I heard you say, you know, how are you doing spiritually? And somebody starts going in their performance list. Uh -huh. What you know is behind that is 
I really feel like a piece of crud because I had this temptation yesterday, but I'm going to compensate for that by boasting about what I've done right with you. And that's the warfare going on in their own mind. So shame produces performance. I don't think it's performance that produces shame. That's really good. So I I love what you're saying about going back to the garden and that shame produces performance. You know, in chapter 11 of your book, you deal with Adam and Eve, and you said something that really opened my eyes. I'd never thought about this before. In fact, at first, when I read it, I go, I disagree. And then I followed your thought to conclusion. I went, oh, I totally agree with this guy. You said, thus, the command in the garden wasn't to demand their obedience, but to incubate their trust. So let's go back to garden. What what did God command Adam and Eve, and and what were his motives in doing so? Well, he just he gave them one tree not to eat of, and he gave them everything else. The, the important thing is what he gave them to enjoy. Yes. And then there's one thing he pulls off and says, you know, don't do this because it, there's a real power in this tree. It wasn't like I'm going to create a really bad tree over here, but this tree gives you wisdom on your own, the knowledge of good and evil. So I'm going to ask you not to do it because you need to learn good and evil in a growing trust in the creator. You can't learn good and evil in a state of distrust, which is where the snake takes Eve into a state of distrust. And then Adam gets in there as well. We can't trust this God to be loving to us. He's trying to keep us from something good. And in the state of distrust, the knowledge of good and evil is oppressive. We can't live up to it. It, uh, it, it, that's where the shame comes from in our life. We, we feel like we're unworthy of the God who made us. Well, it's interesting. In your book, you said something really profound to me that, that God could have explained all the reasons why the tree was off limits, but he didn't. He didn't. And I implied from that on purpose. He didn't on purpose. He could have explained it, but he didn't. And so that leads to my next word in our rapid fire round, which is the word trust. Yeah, trust is my security in the Father's love and affection and wisdom. So if if I know I'm loved, if I know he will go the extra mile for me, now I trust him. I I use a pretty trite illustration in the book, but like one time I took my car to a mechanic, and I'm not a very mechanical guy, and (laughs) a mechanic could really rip me off in a wonderful way. And so I got this horrible estimate when I took the car in. And then when I went to pick it up, it was like $17. And I'm like, what? And he found this little simple thing and he fixed it. Now, I trust that. I don't live in that town anymore. But as long as I lived in that town, that guy gets my car, man. Because he could have charged me $350, $400, which he had estimated. But he charged me $17. That's all it was. And I, I thank God. I think the cross was about that. God, I've got your back. I seriously love you. And I know you've interpreted the, the more climactic events of my interaction with humanity as this angry God out to pour wrath out on people. I'm actually the God that wants to pour my love out. And in fact, wrath is a form of his love. It's not the opposite of it. And so we, we got God in the wrong place, which is exactly why the Pharisees can't see Jesus for who he is. Yeah, that is good. I love the, I lo- I, the people who understood scriptures the best in Jesus' day couldn't recognize God when he was sitting in the room with them. That's unbelievable. So you, I love what you said there that that God's wrath is actually a part of His love. And we were sharing earlier in the podcast the I call it the two hands of God is grace and His wrath, and it's a it's kind of the backhand of His love to kind of knock us back, you know, kind of redirect us. And when I, when I read your book, it was really interesting because you addressed this concept of wrath, 
and I was so excited on you know on page one twenty you dealt with wrath as a part of God's love and honestly it surprised me but I was so excited to read that because a lot of times we portray God as this soft God who lets us do whatever we want I call it cheap grace or grace doctrine but you really well rounded it and brought balance and I want to read something you wrote on page one twenty and ask you about it you said this quote. Often in scripture, God's consuming presence spelled the end of people's lives when his need to deal with their sin for a larger purpose overwhelmed their humanity. Notice the purpose of wrath is not to consume, is is to consume sin and cleanse the universe. That's what it does first, first inside of us if we'll let it. But if not, it will do away with us for sin must be consumed by wrath. Can you explain that quote? Wow, I've got another couple hours probably. It's so uh, good. There's a, <laughs> a lot in that. There is a maybe, lot in that. Maybe, maybe a picture helps. I mean, I look at wrath now. I, I used to look at wrath as God's anger for the away team. And if you're on the away team, you get wrath. And if you're on the home team, you get love because Jesus already got your wrath. And we, we always made this love as one thing and wrath is the opposite. But if God is love, then God's wrath can't be in opposition to his love. It can't be, because that's his very nature. Correct. So wrath comes out of love. So I look at it as the, as the mother bear coming out of the woods to protect her cubs against the wolf who's intruding on them. So it's, it's love, yes. Is it, is it a vicious kind of love? You bet. It's protective. It, it, it asserts itself against that which is destructive. And that's why Paul says that God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness. It's not toward humanity. It's toward the ungodliness that has stained humanity. But if God's going to deal with it in Israel because of the rebellion that's formed, it's going to take out some people so that rebellion doesn't spread. It's going to spread quick enough in Israel without God encouraging it. So God does make these intrusions into history to restrain the power of sin to consume humanity to hold this for the day of redemption. Well, so you, I, I think love and grace work together. You, or you, love and wrath work you, together. I agree 100%. You talked about the mama bear. Uh, in your book, you tell the story of another mama bear, your wife, Sarah, and the bees. Can you tell us about the bees and give us a you know, that kind of that word picture of wrath? I thought that was beautiful. It is a beautiful picture. And this was a long time ago before I even believed this to be true about wrath. I've gone back to this illustration. My, my son was two years old. He's 38 now. So this is 36 years ago. And we're camping in the mountains and he kind of wanders off from camp and gets caught in a bee swarm. And so he just screams in terror. He doesn't know what's going on. He's screaming, flailing his arms. And I'm in a hammock reading a book and Sarah's standing up in our little kitchen area and she takes off running for him. And I'm trying to get out of the hammock and I'm yelling at her, honey, stop, because I see the situation and I need to get there. My wife's allergic to bee stings. We're two hours from the nearest hospital. I don't want her going in there. So I'm screaming, stop, honey, I'll get him. Does she stop? No, she's a mom. She's going in there. She grabs her boy, pulls him out, and I'm and I'm when I'm when she's five feet from him and I'm behind her, I'm not seeing the look on her face, but I think I get what that look is because I saw the look on his face. <laughs> and whatever terror he had of the bees transferred to his mom. He just threw his arms out. No, mommy, no, no, mommy, no. She grabs him. He's still pushing away from her shoulder because he's terrified. He thinks he's in trouble. He doesn't know why. But he sees this look on her face that looks like anger to him. And it is. It's anger at the bees, and it's the passion to get him out. So mm-hmm. we use the, the theological description of wrath as the full weight of God's being brought against that which destroys the object of his affection. We're the object of his affection. 
And this wrath is the full weight of that being, which that being is love. It's the full weight of that being to destroy what's destroying what he loves. Can you say that again? It's the full weight of God's conviction what? It's the full weight of God's being. Being. Brought against that which destroys the object of his affection. Oh, man, that is so powerful. And sadly, in order for him to destroy, the object of his affection is us. And sadly, in order for him to come against that, we are directly impacted, right? Yeah. So uh, sin yeah. may be revealed, uh, you know, some uh, in your book, so you don't want to go to church anymore. You, you told a story where that actually happens to a pastor. And how that pastor uh, dealt with that now is very, very powerful. So, so, so you know, your your mission uh, is to help people to uh, overcome this uh, performance based religion. What inspired you to write the book? Why this book? Why did? What's the why behind it? Well, the why behind it is because I spent forty two years of my life living the performance based Christianity. I mean, I thought that's what it was, and I. As much as I desired to know God, I had moments with God, even 10, 11, 12 years of age in my, in my father's vineyard growing up in Central California. There were moments I knew that God was a reality in the universe. I believed the Sunday morning song. He's a risen savior. He's in the world today. I believed that stuff, but I couldn't see where we really had a sense of a living God who was actively communicating with us. And the only tools I was given to work that were religious tools. It was, you know, quiet times and studies and prayer, prayer time and doing all the stuff you're called to do and trying to ingratiate myself to God, a God I didn't even like all that much. I mean, I was following him because I didn't want to go to hell, which sets up the Stockholm syndrome, not an affectionate relationship with the God of the universe. For sure. I'm just trying to stuck up to him so I can get a better deal about my life, more blessings, more whatever. At 42, my best friend co-pastor announced my resignation one Sunday morning when I was speaking to another congregation elsewhere on the state. Without you knowing about it. I knew on Friday what the plan was. Oh, but I went I'm out so sorry. <laughs> well, I am too. It was it was horrible. I come back going, okay, man, I'm going to kill him now because it's, you know, it's just, it, it's obviously he's lied. This four of our elders have staged this little coup and it's really, now we can clean it up. We've had some problems for a long time uh, among our elder team. And part of it was that it was this rebellion thing going on. So I come back to deal with it, but I was reading at the same time, just coincidentally, not, not, I didn't go to this passage, but I was reading David and Absalom. And I got that pa uh -huh. passage where David's leaving the castle. And I'm like, what? why isn't David just clocking that kid? And he just said, look, if God gave me the kingdom, he can give it back. Yeah. And I just felt like one of those moments in your life where there's this little phrase in my head, that identified to be God, which is, I have more to teach you if you walk away than if you stay. And the hardest decision wow. I ever made was to walk away from 15 years of ministry, people I loved, walk away with the lies being told about me. And yet that journey, that crumbling of my whole performance-based whatever, because I had lived that as well as I could, and now I was still... Well, what you're saying, Wayne, reminded me of a quote from one of our church fathers, Augustine, who said, love God and do as you wish. In, in that in that statement, is he saying exactly what you're saying here with, if you love God as your primary motivation, the sin stuff, the God's will stuff isn't as big of a deal because you're focused on loving God? Is that what he's saying? Is that what you're saying? That's kind of what I'm saying. I'm not sure what Augustine's saying. I'd have to see more context <laughs> on that. But, and I hate to speak for him. But uh, my, my, the, the co-author on So You Don't Want to Go to Church Anymore, a friend of mine, Dave Coleman, who is in many ways a mentor to my journey, 
Um, he defines sin this way, grabbing for ourselves that which God has not given to us. Isn't that a great definition of sin? It's, it's definitely the first sin. It's grabbing for, sure. for ourselves. And you can put any, you can grab any sin list you want, whether it's sexual sin or, or lying or whatever. And you can put that same thing in there. It's grabbing something God hasn't given to me. Why do I do that? Because I don't know that God cares about me. I don't know if he's going to bring into my life the things I need. So I'm going to take ownership of my own stuff. Now, when I learn that I'm loved, now I'm not doing things out of that self-protective, shame-based, performance-based life. I'm living inside the love of the Father, and that makes me treat people differently. That makes me live differently. And yeah, there's a whole lot of my life. I always do this with my, when I talk about people living in God's love, there's this paranoia of, well, I don't sure what his love means, and I'm not sure what you, you know, my grandkids come over here. I don't have an agenda for every minute that they're with me. I want them to come over, and I want to enjoy them. If they want to go outside and play, I'm going to go outside and play. They want to be inside and watch a movie, I'm going to watch a movie. If I've got ice cream for them in the fridge, I'll pull it out when the time comes. But my kids don't come over here paranoid about what does grandpa want at every moment, or they wouldn't come over here. So there is yeah. the freedom. I think, I think what Augustine's getting to, there's the freedom. When you, when you learn to live inside the affection of the Father, and, you, and that's always a growth curve. Man, I've been 24 years into it, and I think I'm about a quarter of an inch deep in what all that means for my life. So yeah. I, I'm not, I, I don't want to give the idea that, man, I've, I've achieved this state. I haven't. I'm growing in this reality. And where I grow in it and operate freely in His love, man, there's just not fear. There's not the paranoia. There's... there's ability to do things that are on my heart. There's ability for him to show me I'm wrong. And the thing I'm doing out of my heart is going to lead to some bad stuff for me or others. I can back out of it. And it is more of a free flowing relational exploration of life than there is this trying to get everything right based on some interpretation of scripture. Yeah. Which is exhausting. You know, it's interesting as I think about sin and my own sin and the things I struggle with and the things I've heard other guys struggle with in the past. A lot of times, guys will excuse away their sin, and one of the things help me help me to work through this. This is a kind of a personal question. So for me, I don't consider it, and maybe I'm looking at this at the wrong angle or a different angle. I don't consider it an issue of me trusting. I just sometimes think I'm a dirty, rotten scoundrel who wants to experience something that's not good now, and I don't think about trust at all. I just think about self-seeking pleasure. Walk me through well, that. Well, yeah, because you're not trust. The, the the lack of trust is what's producing what you're talking about. And the fix is not, I'm a dirty, rotten scoundrel, because Jesus said you're a beloved son of a gracious father. For sure. So what, what I'm, and I love the way Paul does this. I think it's pretty convenient. In the old religious mindset, I didn't have room for it because it just seemed like an excuse. But when yeah. he would say, Romans 7, you know, I do the disgusting thing I don't want to do. Yeah. Then I realized it's no longer me doing it, but sin that indwells me. And I just thought, that's mighty convenient, Paul. You yeah, know, yeah. All the good stuff is me. All the bad stuff, man, that's sin. And I'm not, he's not really <laughs> saying it that way. That's how I interpret it in the old days. Yeah. But what he is saying, I stake my identity in being a beloved son of a gracious father. When I'm acting out in hurtful ways to myself and other people, what I know is I'm not living as a son. It's not that I'm not a son. It's I'm not living as that son. I'm living inside my own fears and desires and ambitions and appetites and that's going to destroy me. So I, the, the sin thing is, yeah, I'm going to, I, I can do that. God's still going to love me. God doesn't say, oh, you did bad. I don't love you anymore. No, I love you. I love you enough to win you out of that. And love is the place where he wins trust and trust is the place that wins obedience. Okay. I'm glad I asked that question. So to, to give you a tame example, that I think a lot of our guys would understand. So I see something that, um, 
a sportsman's store or a sporting goods store. I want it. I know I don't have money for that, but the I've got store, this, the whole store. I've got this little plastic thing. Yeah, I've got this little plastic thing in my pocket. That I go if I pull out the plastic thing, I can get that thing I want, even though I know I don't have the money. I but I've got the plastic thing. Hmm. So what I'm hearing you say, so me, I would just I would do it. I would indulge myself and buy that with a plastic thing. But what I hear is that if I'm really trusting God, I'm saying, okay, Lord, you know what's best for me, and what's best for me is to trust you with what I have and not what I don't have, and you will work this out, and you will help me to understand that self-gratifying short-term pleasure is bad for me in every area of my life, not just with this plastic thing I'm using to pay for this sporting goods thing. Is that yeah, close? That, that could be a, that could be a small example, but my, my thought would be this though: if I if I want something, I'm going to say, "God, is this something you're giving to me right now?" And if it is, then you've got a way to pay for it, and I'm okay. If it's not, if it's just something I'm doing, and usually, you know, we men tend to buy things. Women do it too. We tend to buy things to compensate for something else going on. We're depressed. We've had a tough day at work. I'm trying to get me a little jollies out of that, or out yeah. of you know self sexual gratification, or whatever it is that we go to as as humanity to kind of find a moment of pleasure in a world we feel like is going against us, all that's coming out of the fact that I, I'm not loved by this father. So I'm trying to medicate my feeling unloved by borrowing, by drinking, by all the things that we do uh, to cope with our existence. Sin is mostly a coping mechanism for not having God alive in our hearts. And so the prayer is, and when I want to buy something, it's always number one, Father, is this something you have for me? Number two, is my wife okay with the purchase if it's above, you know, five, ten dollars? Is she okay with this? Yeah. I don't I don't bring it home and say, Are you okay with this? Yeah. I, mean, I got time to go home. I got time to have a conversation with Sarah. We we can talk that out. So it's that because if I'm doing something that puts our finances at risk, I'm disrespecting her. The problem is not just I'm being indulgent, I'm disrespecting the partner God's given me. And so I'm, 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 I think what, what learning to live love means is it backs me out of the, ang the angst of the moment of trying to get something pleasurable and allows me to think about the wider things and then make a better decision. You talked about doing this to cope with my own existence. Do, do you think that we have a favor line? You talk about this in your book on page 49. Do you think we have a favor line? in the dialogue with ourselves. I know we have a favor line, which I'll ask you to explain with other people, but do we have our own personal favor line? And is this why we overindulge in things before we should uh, indulge in them? Because we're trying to win favor with ourselves? I, I don't know that, I, you know, when I talk about the favor line, it's more between God and us. Am, okay. am I good enough to merit God's love today? So I, whatever, however I draw that line is God, and you can ask people, is God disappointed with you today? And most people will say, yeah, I think God's disappointed with me. Most people live with that attending sense of God's a bit disappointed in me. I don't get it all right. And I'm supposed to get it all right because be holy as I'm holy, you know. So I, I didn't make holiness today, so I'm short on that. So I think most people live as if God is disappointed in them instead of living alongside us knowing our frailty as broken humanity. I mean, I, I love my grandkid when he's three and pitching a three-year-old grandkid fit. I don't love him less because he's pitching a fit. He's three years old. I don't think we've given growing people of faith the freedom to be children, to be young men, to be adults. It's kind of like we force everybody from the start. This is the, this is, that's what obligation does. This is the performance level. Get here. 
instead of God loves us in our brokenness. God loves us in the pain, in the indulgence, in the stupid thing that we're doing. And so I, I think part of the favor line, I, don't, I, I, did, I at least didn't wrestle with it with me. I wrestled with it with God, whether I was in his favor or not. If I was in his, I was in mine. If I wasn't in mine, I, it, it didn't, I didn't seem to think of it in that way. Yeah, but and other we, people don't. Well, and we, we do have a favor line with other people. I mean, Bill Harley calls it a love bank in his book, His Needs, Her Needs. Uh, I heard another speaker one time talk about a, being ledger people or the reciprocation expectation. You call the, fa- the you call this favor line in your book, you define it as, quote, the invisible line that tells us whether or not we've met someone's expectations to merit approval. And then you go into greater detail and you describe the tyranny of the favor line. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, because, I mean, isn't it used? I mean, just if you want to go back with humanity, any congregation you go to is going to have an ethic of life together that makes you more spiritual or less spiritual, right? And you're going to meet the expectations by how often your rear ends in a pew on Sunday morning or <laughs> how much you volunteer for something else or whatever. There's a, And when, when you're on the right side of that favor line, people love you. You get talked about from the pulpit. It's just wonderful, everybody. And then when you're not measuring up the way people think you ought to and they're a little bit worried or suspicious about you, you still get talked about from the pulpit, but it's a little different now. And people And we we use, because the approval in our hearts is the compensation for shame, which we all have. Outside the cross and outside of being loved by God, you can manipulate anybody by manipulating their shame. And that, that's what Madison Avenue does. It's, that's why you want you, you need a better car so you'll feel better about yourself. You, it, we're constantly being appealed to. Religion has used that approval thing. Which is why Paul says in Galatians two, if you are Galatians one, if you want to be a bond servant of Jesus Christ, you can't seek other people's approval because that will mess you up. That's going to put you on other people's standards. And if I jump through enough hoops, you'll like me. And if I don't, you'll be angry at me or you'll treat me distantly or viciously or whatever. So yeah, we constantly manipulate that favor, which is we're just manipulating people's shame. That's what we're doing. We're not leading them to love. So when I say you don't measure up or I don't measure up. We're talking about measuring up to the favor line. Yeah. Well, so, I am so disappointed in you. Uh, you're drawing the line right there. Oh, yeah. Man. You, Parenting yeah, mistake. Now you got them, confession. Now you got them on a, a on a on a performance track. I've got yeah. to now not disappoint you anymore. Yeah. That's, that's oh man. Well, so where does where does Romans eight one fit into our theology then? It says there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, Romans chapter seven, which you alluded to earlier, Paul's saying, That thing I do I don't want to do, the thing I don't want to do I do. Oh, what a wretched man I am. So where does Romans eight one fit in? Is that a verse you wish a humanity would camp on more? Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> I wish we would live the reality of it, which, you know, some people, and by that I mean the genuine reality. There's some people just saying, well, there's no condemnation anymore, and they just treat people like chattel, <laughs> and they're rude and dismissive, and say, well, there's no condemnation. I, God loves me no matter what I do. And I, that's not what Romans 8.1 is about. It's saying where Wayne lives in Christ, there is no shame, no condemnation, no fear. Where Wayne's living outside of that reality, there's all kinds of shame and fear, and I feel bad about myself. But the answer is not, I'm going to do things to fix my shame, but I'm going to lean back into that space that is Christ and his love. And doing that, and here's, I think, what I didn't trust as a pastor back in the day. So we always had to put bumper guards on everybody's life to make sure, yeah, you want to follow Christ. Yes, we're free in Christ, but you know, here's the rules. Don't do this, do this. 
And what we don't believe is that God's worth loving for himself and that people who love God will be transformed, will be in a process of God changing them. And because we don't believe that God can do it, we keep trying to do it for each other. We keep drawing the favor line. We make people, for the most part, they can act well around the environment in which those things are embellished. But behind the scenes, they live with a sense of their own disapproval and their own disappointment. Oh, man. So disapproval, disappointment, shame. I, I hear the word failure coming out loud and clear on this. And and so there's a, there is a dilemma or a tension, I guess, between... In the church with God's people among uh, about failure versus performance, and mm-hmm. we equate failure as a bad thing, but you, you wrote on page 93, which I thought was really deeply profound, God sees something redemptive even in, I love how you've put this, letting us fail. So here's now, here's God not dealing with us as failures. Here's God like the prodigal father, the prodigal, the father in the prodigal story, uh, you know, letting his son leave, right? Letting his son walk in that, that space. You go, you continue and you say, he's, I just love this. He seems less concerned about our mistakes than how we respond to them. You know, you've written extensively, Wayne, against performance-based religion. You know, King David is a man after God's heart. And I wonder if it's how King David dealt with his failures that made him a man of uh, a man after God's heart, and not his failures themselves. So, how do our mistakes help us understand God better? Yeah, and I think David's a good example because when Saul's exposed for his mistake, what does he do? He justifies himself. Yeah, right. When David's exposed, he just says, "Yeah, got me. You got me. I did it." And I'm going to God. I'm going to get resolve this stuff. But both of those are pre-cross guys. I, I, I think so much of our Christian theology has struggled because we act as if the cross didn't happen. The cross is the demarcation line in human history. Everything about the way we engage God is different because Jesus resolved our sin and shame on a cross. David didn't know that. Saul didn't know that. Yes. That's why Jesus says, you know, there's no one greater among you, born of women, except John the Baptist, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We have such a different opportunity because we we do have shame. We do deal with some of that. We don't deal with it in the same way they dealt with it because the cross changed all of that. Yeah. And I don't think we give enough credence to that. We we mostly go back to performance-based living, which is old covenant, do good, get good, do bad, get bad. We mostly go back to that as if the cross didn't happen and that there's a different way to be transformed in the life of Christ and that a confirmation environment, we even call some of our Christian training confirmation. We're conforming people to a standard, to a theology, to no, it's not. It's trans. We want transformational environments where honesty and integrity, and I can struggle in my failure and God be present there and struggle with my sin and God be present there and me not run away ashamed. Uh, And that's what guys need to know, because we are going to struggle. We are going to make mistakes. Is God the guy we can run to or is God the guy we got to run from until we kind of feel like uh, maybe we've all forgotten and we can go on? Is he the God I'm going to run to or run from? And then you said, is is God present there? And and as I I go back to an Oswald Chambers uh, devotional I read years and years ago now that I never forgot. And you actually talk about the quote inadvertently in your book. I don't know if you were thinking of Oswald Chambers or if you were just you know, spitballing this, but it really reminded me of that Chambers quote. You talked about working for God, which would be performance, 
instead of working with him, which is relationship. And on page 153, you said, when you trust him, there it is again, trust. When you trust him, you find yourself cooperating with his work going on in you and around you. Trust is not coasting through life, assuming that whatever happens must be God's will. Rather, it is an active partnership that rises out of your relationship with him. Will you embellish? Uh, boy, I, I like the way I said it right there. I was Dude, I'm telling you, you got some I, great I quotes still, in here, man. I really enjoyed I, pulling this stuff out. <laughs> I still like that because I, I, I do think we, we have a problem with this idea of I've got to be more performance-based. I've got to make this stuff work for God. And the whole working for God thing, when, I, when I, God began to shift my heart and let me learn to live inside his love better, I look back at everything I did for God was really for Wayne. Yeah, it for was, sure. It was, to be, it was to be successful, to be popular, to be whatever. And I keep saying it was for God because that made it look like I was a good guy. But it was just a way of masking. With God is such a better way to live. I wake up in the morning, God, what, are, what do you want me to be involved with with you today? What are you involved in? Jesus only doing the things he saw the Father doing, only saying the things he father, saw the Father saying, heard the Father saying. So he's into a real partnered, uh, God's helping me navigate my life through this world. And I love that he does that. You know what, Dwayne, or Dwayne, I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, you keep saying working through in the last 24 years. Do you find, I'm just confessing this to you, because I mean, I think our guys who are listening to this podcast, they need to re- hear the real deal. I've, I've really come out of the performance-based mentality in the last probably three years, but I oscillate. If I'm honest with you, I oscillate. I say things, I do things, I think things that 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 are trying to pull me back to performance, even though I realize I serve a good, good father and I'm affirmed in him because of Jesus and what he did and nothing that I did. You're further along in this journey than me. Do you feel like, do you seem to be, do you experience uh, oscillation or are you pretty solid in moving in this new direction? Well, after 24 years now, I'm I'm getting pretty settled in this reality. It's not that I can't be pulled off of it now and then because I can be. But that oscillation you refer to when I'm in your state, three, four, five, six, seven years into it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the ways we live, we live without thinking. It's just the way our minds condition to think. And transformation, the renewing of the mind so that we think differently and thus live differently is not an on-off switch. You don't go forward on Sunday and make a new discovery and confess, and then tomorrow you live totally different. That's just a, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. It, that oscillation, what I like about the oscillation is it can wildly swing in the early days. And most people think, well, I'm not really getting us. No, let it swing. It eventually, the oscillation swings become shorter and shorter and smaller and smaller and more and more distant. And that's what Christian growth is really like. It's, it's organic. It's not... It's not either or. It's not one thing or the other. It's this vacillation. That God, and it's not just between performance-based, because it's between right sin and performance-based and affection-based. So there's actually a three-dimensional kind of oscillation going on. And yeah, that that those can still go on in my life and heart now, 24 years in, but they're not as wild as often. They're not, they don't, yeah, it's a lot easier to recognize, whoa, the prayer I told you about earlier, oh, man, there's something about your love, God, I don't know, or I would, I'd be responding differently in this situation than I am. And coming to that prayer in 20 minutes rather than six days is, is progress. Yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah, because we all have anger and selfishness in six, eight, ten days, and then you're finally going, oh, you know what, maybe maybe I'm missing something about God's love here. Um, and, and that without shame, that not like, oh, I should have it all together by now. I just, 
I just think that's so sad that we have created the idea that if you really understand the spiritual life, you live it flawlessly after a week or two. Yeah, that's powerful, man. Well, you, you, in your book, I don't know where it is in your book. I have it underlined, but so we, our guys are driving to work right now, listening to this podcast. They're guys, they're 25 to 50 years old. They're in the stress bubble of life. These guys are hardworking American guys, mostly. And we have guys from what, 50 something countries that have listened to this podcast. Mostly, mostly, mostly American. So in your book, you said, I don't have any drive. I've lost my drive, I think is what you said. Or I'm not driven anymore. And how would you how would you respond to guys who are going to work, who are godly guys, love the Lord, maybe oscillating between performance a little bit? Where does drive, where does drive fit into the Christian life, or does it? What would you tell these guys who are building their careers? They're in their 30s. What would you say to these guys as as followers of Jesus? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to draw a distinction here between drive and, you know, being successful in business. If you're, if you're driven, that means there's something broken in you that's trying to be satisfied so that your success and whatever is a compensation, right? Ah, uh, okay. So I don't see driven as a good thing ever, but I see people who really have something on their heart and they're doing a good job and they're serving people and they're building a successful business. You can do that without being driven in the way I interpret driven. You know, the, pur- the book, The Purpose Driven Life. I never, I, I didn't think that was good news. I think it, to be driven by something is different than being led. Being led, being driven is being pushed. Being led is being invited. And I think religion is always about intrusion. It's always about trespassing. It's always about compelling. It's always about forcing. And I think the life of the spirit is an invitation to come ride the wind with me. Come live inside my love. Love is always an invitation. You can't compel love. When I, when I fell in love with Sarah 47 years ago while we were in college together, I, did, I didn't go up to her and say, hey, you know, God, I love you, and God told us we're going to be together, and let's get married. And she said, well, I'm not, I'm not really interested in that. Well, yes, you will be. And I, I didn't try and compel her into my love. I, I won her into my love. Ah, By the way, I treated her. And, and yes. I think that's what God wants to do with us, and not just at the cross, because of the cross every day. I want you to win you into my affection, because where I have you in my affection I'll have your trust. And where I have your trust, I'll have your obedience. And I'll, I'll watch you live a life more fruitful, more healthy, more at rest than you'll live if you're being driven by your own need to be successful or your own need to perform or whatever. So it's not what we're doing. It's why we're doing it. Well, so you, so you would equate driven to Philippians 2 where Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Because driven, what you're saying is driven at the heart of it is me. Itself. Okay, I yeah. got you. I, you know, I, what I really liked about your book also is you kind of came full circle with this thing. You started with this, you know, child pulling daisy petals. You know, he loves me, he loves me not. You talked about trust of Adam and Eve in the garden, and and that God requires our trust and, and more than our obedience. And you came full circle in your journey, uh, in your own story, how you be, you were a guy who was a pat answer guy, Bible answer man, to now a guy who's a fellow struggler. And uh, it all really comes back down to that. Uh, you wrote this, and I thought this was really good. You said, instead of trying to fix people in crisis, which that's what pastors do, right? We try to fix people in crisis. I know we shouldn't do it, but I mean, that's what you're saying. I hear you. Instead of Not trying just to pastors, man, that's what husbands and fathers always do. They come home, something's gone wrong. I'm I'm the fix it guy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So you said instead of trying to fix people in crisis, love will graciously lend them our support. 
we will be able to offer insight as fellow strugglers, not experts with pat answers. And you write this, then we will be safe places for people to be encouraged in their trials to discover what it means to rely on God in the midst of it. And you shared in your book that you are not a safe place for people and you became a safe place and they in love confronted a question you asked. You want to walk us through that journey? Oh, just a story about somebody going through, I was sitting in a small group of people in a home. People I've known for years, they knew me pre they knew me pastoring and post-pastoring. And uh, I, all of a sudden, everyone in the room is sharing stuff with me about, you know, an accusation at work and a, a problem financially here. And we're just in this room with people talking. And I just I had this thought of, man, what a sick bunch of people I'm with. And I, I made <laughs> you guys made are a mess. Of, you know, I, what's going on? I've never used to know this many people in this kind of need. And one of my best friends in the room who had also been an elder with me at the church I'd been at previously. He just said, no, Wayne, you've always been around people like this. It's that you weren't a safe place for people to tell you. And now you are. Now, having been through what you've been through, now people are fine telling you what they're going through. And I think love creates the space for that. And Because when I was a good Pharisee, I thought I was earning it. And then I, I wanted other people around me to earn it too. One thing Pharisees are is miserable, and misery loves company. So if I'm working hard to please God and you're not, I'm ticked. Instead of, yeah. no, man, I, and I say this to parents of adult children who are not making choices the parents love. And I'll just say, you know, the best environment for God to access your kid is an environment of love and safety that you extend to them. Regardless of your disapproval of choices they're making, you create an environment where I love and support you because you're my kid and I'm with you. And uh, that environment maximizes God's opportunity to make himself known. We and that's are, the only thing that changes people. We are only a safe, we are only, we only go to people who we trust that will be safe. If yeah. I don't trust that you're going to be a safe place, I'm not going to go to you. And so what the nope. father is saying is I'm your I'm a safe place. You're forgiven. Or when I'm with you, I'll pretend. That's the other thing. You know, if you're not safe, I'll, you're with me. I say, hey, wait, you know, and I say, hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Everything's wonderful. They're not going to open up their heart to me because it's yeah. just going to get crunched on me. And people are tired of that. That's really the litmus test for uh, are we a safe place is do we have people who are willing to share their struggles in their heart with us? And trust us not bat them around or to violate them or to uh, heap uh, shame on them, right? And so, yeah, man, well, you, so you, you conclude the book. Uh, again, I'm just pulling quotes out that I really enjoyed. So it's not the sure. true conclusion. The true conclusion is like on in the almost 200. But on page 172, I felt like you concluded the book. And you said this. Love, and I thought this was so powerful. I actually didn't underline it. I put it in a block. I blocked it in type of thing. You said, okay. love will take you further than law ever will. Yeah. And that what's more, you'll do it reflecting the very love you've received from Jesus. So what are your closing thoughts? Uh, just that. I, I, <laughs> I love that. I mean, I probably could have cut the book off there, saved me a few more weeks. But uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. no, I, the, the point is, if we genu not learn about God's love, that's that's really what I don't want people to hear from this. Well, I've just got to believe God loves me. No, it's to experience the love of the Father. It's to invite him in, show me your love, let him win you into that life. When you do that, everything else about your life will make sense. Where you don't do that and you just got to work hard to make yourself feel okay with you or make you think God's okay with you, you're going to find yourself exhausted and eventually empty and you will give up on spirituality eventually. You'll just give up as I don't need another pressure in my life 
to try and be better for some other thing. I've got enough trying to feed my family and take care of my kids. Well, you know what, Dwayne? Uh, I keep wanting to call you Dwayne, darn it. When I, Wayne, when I hey, read your book, when I, when I first opened your book, yeah, <laughs> don't heap shame. <laughs> when I, when I opened, Bob Newhart said, just stop it. <laughs> When I when I read when I opened your book, I thought, oh gosh, another book on learning about God's love. I, I honestly, I'm like, I've heard blah blah blah. All I ever hear about is God's love, God's love. But you know, you really averted that well, and you didn't talk about, you didn't teach me about how to learn about God's love. You actually taught me, and maybe I, I don't want to misinterpret the book, Wayne. So if I'm wrong, help me. I thought you did an excellent job on helping your readers experience God's love. Instead of and beyond learning about love, First Corinthians thirteen one is it? No, First Corinthians. Anyway, what is it? it? Says love puffs up, or knowledge yeah. puffs up, but loves builds up. Yeah, I think it's eight or nine. And, yeah, and I and I felt like that's what you did in the book. You didn't give me a bunch of knowledge. You gave me a bunch of experience, uh, opportunities to experience God. And so I really appreciate that. And man, I really appreciate taking your time to share your heart and your passion. And and really, in a lot of ways, a new paradigm of uh, how we look at God, which is ridiculous since it's right there in the Bible, uh, to, to move away from this performance-based religion, when I think, I think a lot of us guys especially struggle with. So if guys want to learn more about what you're doing, man, is the best place to go to uh, thegodjourney.com? Uh, Livestream.org is kind of the home site. They'll find links to godjourney.com from there. But Livestream's got a lot of, a lot of free resources. Uh, Engage is a video series. It's free to help people kind of experience. How do I experience God? There's Transitions, which is getting the whole love, wrath, cross thing wrapped around in their head. So there's a lot of resources there to help guys think this through if they want to. But the God Journey is just the ongoing podcast I do with various people. Oh, so it's a pod. Okay. So the podcast. Okay. Well, that's excellent. So they can go check out your podcast, thegodjourney.com. And so, hey, man, thanks so much for coming on our show, Wayne, and and uh, sharing your wisdom and knowledge. And man, really, really appreciate this. I really believe that this is a topic that's going to deeply, deeply impact the hearts of men. Hey, guys, so let's get our boots on the ground. What, what's what's something that you can do to uh, move yourself forward in your journey with Christ? And, and I, I had written down something. I changed it. I want to give you an action item today. And, and here's what I want you just to get take some time, get away for like an hour, and just think about yourself as a safe harbor, a safe place. What 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 is how can you become a safe place for people who love you, and how is God that safe place for you? Just I want you to reflect on that, and uh, think about your children, think about your wife. Do those people see you that way? And and this is not a guilt or shame. This is just you. Just go away and ponder those. And uh, maybe you've been wrapped in this performance based mentality, like I have struggled with for years. And maybe you need to um, just sit in the presence of God and just. Uh, let him teach you what that looks like. Man, make sure you head on over to our website, menonarena.org. Grab your free copy of our newest resource for you, Man Laws, 100 Ways to Get Your Man Card Revoked and Rules to Live By. And also make sure you join, sign up to join one of our many virtual teams that happen all around the world. So guys, until next time, feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Grind it out and be a man.
What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men for around the world and find out the type of dad you are.